This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. Today in the Loopcast, I have Alex and Emmy, and we're discussing Gamergate, or as I kind of wrote out these questions more accurately, using Gamergate as our case study to examine online movements. The reason that I chose Gamergate over a whole range of other things is that Gamergate to me serves as an example of a complete kind of, it's kind of a complete example. It touches on everything. It starts off in online spaces, in completely online spaces. It expands and evolves to something else. It is co-opted in real time by the mainstream. And now a year, you know, it only lasts a year. It only lasted a year and a half. And now sitting in 2021, it's just memories and memoirs. It doesn't exist yet. We live its impact. And so today we're going to be discussing that. So please welcome my guests, Emmy and Alex. Hi guys. Howdy. Hey, how's it going? Hey, I want to start off. So initially when I started writing the questions for the show, I wanted to just do a history timeline of Gamergate. And I realized that wasn't so much a useful question as how do you create a history? Because I I kept on going through the sources and every source would tell a different story. Even if that source was sort of presenting themselves as documentarian, right? They would tell the, the story in one way. And then, you know, when you get into Zoe's memoirs, she tells it another way. And then, you know, the participants in Gamergate would tell it another. So when you sit down as a researcher, you know, how are you beginning to construct a history of an online event like Gamergate? It, Gamergate in particular is a really hard event to document for like a couple of reasons. Like, I mean, one, it happened over a bunch of different websites in different spaces, none of which are known to be researcher friendly, except for Twitter, which is relatively easy to document. And then two, a lot of it was banned or like deleted or otherwise moderated and lost to time because it was generally considered uh, bad. A lot of the platforms that had a lot of like the Gamergate kind of harassment tried to ban it some more successfully than others. A lot of stuff was deleted. Articles were deleted. A lot of stuff is kept in archive and you can still kind of find those records, but so much of it is just gone. And then of course, the other problem is that a lot of Gamergate happened in places that we can't see private chats, messages, like there was coordination that we'll just never be able to know the full extent of. But I also think that like the history of Gamergate, like the quote history is maybe the wrong way to think about it anyway. Like, I don't know, but I, I think we we need to think about it in terms of the conditions of Gamergate. Like a bunch yeah. of different elements had to be ready to come together at the right time to like make this movement, hashtag backlash, whatever you want to call it. And I think it's more important that we analyze how each of those conditions that produce Gamergate were able to come together and work than it is for us to be able to create a precise timeline. Because the timeline's messy. Like regardless of the series of events that made Gamergate, like the conditions were brewing for a long time and you needed that like right combo of like in-group, out-group stuff. Like you needed the numbers, you needed large enough reactionary sentiment uh, to be like politically mobile. You needed rhetoric, like 
with a real and impressive valence to move through different sites and cultures and concerns to kind of take this more like niche identity fandom forum stuff to something resembling the mainstream. Um, yeah, and I think and when I you, sorry, yeah, sorry, Amy. Uh, and I think when you when you when you talk about that, you know, the the overlapping conditions that gave rise to Gamergate, like you essentially end up having to talk about the history of video games as an industry, as a medium, as an art form altogether, because Gamergate would not have existed. It would not have it would not have caught on this sort of reactionary campaign wouldn't have caught on within video games had video games not been a particular form of media and fandom and culture that was vulnerable to that sort of exploitation and had catered to it over the course of many decades like it, it when when you read about a history of gamergate it always starts with zoe quinn but there had been you know women of color in the games industry getting harassed in similar sorts of coordinated campaigns years before zoe did before that sort of spark lit the fire there had been you know massive reactionary backlashes to various different things in the industry going back into the 80s and 70s like the history of video games is very much part and parcel with the history of sort of the rise of online reactionary culture and this you know it ends up meaning that you have to tell like five decades of history to actually really understand what what happened with why Gamergate got its start in 2013-2014 when it did. Yeah and I've tried to sit down and make a timeline before and what I found is like not really helpful. Finding out if one event happened in August or September is not the most important part of how and why those events happened. But understanding that there was like a point in game marketing history where they decided to put toys in the boy aisle, like yeah. that is more important to understanding Gamergate than the like every individual message posted to Reddit, like trying to figure out like how, like in what order those things happened. Yeah, and I mean, if you, creative to find information, right? Like, if you want to, and if you want to dig in even deeper, like you can go back to like the power to the player marketing campaigns and stuff. Like the all of the marketing campaigns oh, yeah. during the during the mid two thousands that targeted this sort of empowerment to consumers. Like the consumer is always it was like post structural structuralism on crack. Like it was this crazy massive shift of any of like center of power from the artist, from the game maker, from the game developer to the players. Like the players were the in the in the eyes of the marketers in the eyes of the pr firms the players were the ones actually making any sort of value for the games any sort of meaning and it was a complete sort of uh shift in that way that led to this this growth of the and, and this consolidation this empowerment culture and in particular among the sort of young white males who were getting targeted primarily by that marketing campaign oh for sure i mean i I put the start date at Halo 3's launch campaign. I think that was like the time where, I mean, because like video game marketers were, were, were struggling and also traditional advertisers were struggling because there was this like incredible, powerful, new interactive medium that had a lot of potential for like all sorts of, of advertising, all sorts of marketing. And they weren't sure how to best make use of this new medium that wasn't just putting ads in games, which they found to be ineffective. And so, you know, lots of parties, including like the military were like, hey, like this could be a great recruitment opportunity. This could be a great place for us to, to start trying to reach this young male demographic that we're taught, we're our, our 16s to 34. And they, so like games were made to cater to that demographic while 
advertisers were trying to figure out how to market those games to that demographic and other advertisers trying to figure out how they could use that marketing to reach gamers of that demographic. And like the most, you know, I think like memorable example was like PepsiCo doing the whole Doritos and Mountain Dew as gamer fuel ad to 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 gamers trying sending their non-game product but marketing it as an, like an identity product for gamers that real gamers <laughs> eat these horrible foods and it it like i i get i think understanding that is going to be more useful than understanding yeah. every aspect of that timeline because that was like the idea of like oh, i'm rambling a little here but <laughs> gamergate they there is so much talk in gamergate about identity as a gamer and like their game gamers are the most oppressed group they talked about like you know uh, gamers are dead all of that kind of thing but that construction of gamers and identity did not happen during gamergate it very no. much happened in a series of advertising campaigns long before yeah i mean it, i think one of the most interesting things and, and the reason why emmy and i are talking about this right now is this is the this is the foundation for what gamergate was built on it was you know 15 years of marketing campaigns that that emphasized the white young male, like, you know, adolescent male as sort of like this, this all powerful figure in the video game industry, the person who knows what he wants and is, and, and should be catered to. Like there were like, you don't see this in any other type of medium. You're never going to see a film who has an audience stand in a person, like literally picking up a bazooka and going out and warring against aliens. Like this happened all of the time. Call of Duty and Halo in particular had, had advertisements played on like in NBA games and like, you know, in these huge profile situations where they would literally have like an adolescent dude, like going out and like having the power fantasy like that, that is the sort of thing that, that uh, audiences were being primed with from, from these marketing campaigns. They were being primed with this idea. Yeah, exactly. You know, they were told for years that they were right, that what they, what their, what their desires and what their, what their likes were, were the core of the video game industry. And it's always been a lie. Like it's, it's never been true that, that like males were like 95% of the video game audience. Like women have all and, and other demographics have always made up significantly larger portions than it would seem if you just looked at the marketing. But, you know, for whatever reason, marketing has just always geared itself towards that, towards those audiences. Hilariously, like when, when video game marketers were first trying to figure this out, they found that like technically the largest gaming demographic was like women over the age of 34. Yeah. And, but that, that, that demographic wasn't interesting to them for marketing reasons. They wanted, they wanted young people and they wanted men in particular, partially because they tend to have, you know, more disposable income, more willing to, you know, make purchases, which is why advertisers wanted them. But it's obvious why the military would want to reach that demographic, right? Like, especially when you look at all these war games that are very much sponsored <laughs> uh, by the military. Like, they, of course, they want they wanted people of recruitment age, and so they 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 geared their content for it. And I don't want. I don't, don't pe- nobody tweet at me and tell me, well, not all video games are made that way. Cause no, of course not. <laughs> um, but yeah, like that, that, that history gamers. is very real and well documented. Yeah. Not hashtag, not all gamers just right off the bat. <laughs> I don't mean you, if you're listening to this and you're getting upset, I'm not talking about you. Yeah. The, the other thing I wanted to say too, is when you think about creating a history of Gamergate, you also have to, to consider the rise of the 
the media outlets and other sorts of individuals and influencers and reporters who are trying to take a different tack against that marketing strategy. Like I, you know, I worked at, I, I still write for GameSpot, which is one of the bigger video game websites and they do the best they can, but in a lot of ways, they're still pretty like one of the old school video game websites, but there were in that sort of early, late, late 2000s, early 2010s era, there were a lot of outlets and media people and personalities popping up who were taking a very oppositional tack towards the white male centric video game industry. Like Kotaku's, you know, got its start as sort of this, this gathering place for people who wanted to take a different sort of approach to games criticism and games reporting. And so you have these, like in the, in the 2000s and 2010s, you had these two forces who were sort of both developing in tandem and both like taking pretty profoundly op- you know opposite stances and it was going to it was going to come to blows at some point and it's very unfortunate that it came to blows in the way that it did but you have these you know when you have two centers of, of power such as they were growing in such a way in the same industry like something is going to happen they're going to come into conflict at some point and and so you know it's like it, it is also worth interrogating and investigating how Kotaku came to be, how the other sorts of smaller games outlets and games personalities came to be. And a lot of it was because they recognized that the marketing was alive, that the, that white males didn't didn't make up a majority of, of gamers and that they wanted to talk to the people of color. They wanted to talk to the women. They wanted to talk to the, the even the like the the older dudes who played Bejeweled on their phone or whatever, or were just yeah. super into League of Legends. Yeah, what I think is really important about that is that those are people that actually liked video games. And like, I Gamergate was so extremely not about video games. Like pretty much any way you look at it, even the most charitable way you look at it, this was not about people who liked games or or were even like, like it, 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 it's not that it's, I tend to dislike calling Gamergate a fandom in a lot of ways because they didn't actually like anything. It was 100% about what they didn't like. And the the sort of like new video game media was way more open to exploring like like changes in the medium, new styles, new creators, because they genuinely enjoyed it. And there was a type of earnestness to that that was never going to survive the churn of the internet anyway, at least not until a couple of like real doofuses got it out of their system. Yeah, it's it's it seems nuts to say this but like a big sort of a big source of friction in the like reactionary side of the games industry was the fact that these new media sites were like reviewing let's say dead rising and giving it a four out of ten and reviewing like a mobile game and giving it a nine out of ten like this this willingness to to approach things um for their inherent value rather than for any sort of preconceived notions about what type of media it was like literally did make a like a ton of people extremely angry and it makes no sense if you think about it now because we've come you know we have thankfully come a pretty long way but it like there were these extraordinarily entrenched ideas about what a quote-unquote good game was and what a quote-unquote bad game was and what a game was, was at all yeah what a game was at all and it was all so linked to identity. It was all so linked to what these people felt like was theirs, what they had been told was theirs, and what they had melded with their identity through the throughout their their time of growing up. That it ended up with like, you know, a bunch of people mounting harassment campaigns against reviewers who gave, like I said, Dead Rising a two out of ten or a four out of ten or whatever. Yeah. 
So I'm kind of interested in examining what would you consider the in-group in this movement or spasm of anger or whatever. Like you, you've already touched on white male kind of, you know, who have been subject to this marketing campaign saying that video games are, you know, for men, white men preferably or whatever. Could you be more explicit and kind of define what you consider the in-group in, in this movement? Is it, is it really just, you know, you know, just about anger and just about, you know, this is not something we like, you know, walk us through that, that you know, the in-group a bit. I don't even think they fully knew what the in-group was, but like the, like the movement itself was very much a front for a backlash against feminism and what a lot of right-wingers on the internet at the time were calling SJWs before we had the, you know, the word for woke, which white people only learned very recently. And that part is undeniable, regardless of a lot of the intentions of the people. Like, I think there were absolutely some folks who were just kind of along for the ride, but the underlying political messaging was the same, no matter which angle they came from. But what they wanted to do was they wanted to protect their media, which was a critical vector for political thought. It always has been. And generally changing, has the power to change public perception. And they wanted to protect that medium from influence by people who might make that content might make content that promotes like, I don't want to say leftist, it's not really what I mean, but content that promotes things that are incompatible with more conservative, patriarchal, right-wing thinking. And they'll claim that it was, they wanted to stop politics from, in general, from infringing on their good video games, but that is bullshit for like two huge reasons. And one, everything is political. And the fact that you see the mere inclusion of different types of people as a political statement, but the presence of men as apolitical is very telling. And two, one of their biggest targets was a person who made their own game that reflected their own interests and was not infringing on their space at all, with the exception of using the medium to tell their own story. And it wasn't like they were just going after creators of games that they liked the way fans do, saying, you know, oh, don't change this thing that we love. But they went after people who were not stepping on their toes at all, people who made their own stuff. And they went after them just for using that medium. And I think that was 100% on purpose because I think the smartest people involved in Gamergate were the ones who understood that the typical marketing of games to young men was not going to keep women and minorities out of the space forever. And I don't just mean as consumers, like they wanted to keep women and minorities from making games because they recognized the persuasive power of an interactive medium like that. and wanted the re- wanted to retain the rights to it by making it as hostile a place as possible for people that might make content with, I will be delicate and say alternative political appeals. So I think that was the in-group, was, was, was people, people who, who wanted to retain the rights to a particular medium. I think even, I think even saying white men exclusively would be way too narrow. And I also yeah. don't think it was exactly the identity they were coming from. But people who felt entitled to video games as a medium was very much a big part of it. Yeah. And I, I think it's useful to to because it because it is hard to actually identify what the in-group exactly is because it's it's fluid, it's flexible, it it involves all the things that Amy was saying. I think a way to do it, a way to think about it too is identifying the the points of the points that were that were sparking outrage, the points that were sparking friction. So like, you know, we can start at the at the bottom where like two of them, two of the main points that were that were causing a, a ton of outrage, a ton of backlash during the sort of 
genesis of, of Gamergate were one that people were so like media media people and personalities were finally calling out the fact that like every video game cover has a white male on the front with a gun. And then two, they were they were also starting to call out the fact that a lot of games were and especially Japanese role playing games had been hyper sexualizing women for 30 or 40 years. And those two things were like massive sort of points of of conflict in the sort of burgeoning culture war during that time like the there were gaming communities and, and like across all sorts of different websites a lot of very small niche communities that had started rallying around this idea that like people were coming for their games they were they were like kotaku and feminist frequency and all these other sort of media influencers who dare to speak against the 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 sort of hegemonic idea of what video games should be that they were like straight up like trying to pull their pull these people's games from their cold dead hands sort of thing like it was sort of it was very much it was very similar to the sort of like nra reaction to any sort of gun control legislation ever like mm-hmm. it's this it's this very maximalist idea that like very sort of zero-sum thinking about you know anina sarkeesian on on feminist frequency saying that games are hypersexualized actually means that like Kotaku and all, and all of the video game websites are literally trying to pass legislation to ban like sexualized women in games. Like that's the sort of that's the sort yeah. of sort of logic that was being thrown around. They'd full conspiracy theories about how all the game websites were like coordinating against them, which is so like ridiculous. And they also like I, I, again like the part where they were just you know like they're they're take they're taking away our games. The same way people talk about taking away their guns. Again, they they weren't even mad at the people who made the games they like. They were yeah. going after people who literally made their own independent content because they're like, hey, I don't like what's happening in games. I'm going to make my own. And they were like, no, <laughs> yeah. you can't do that. Yeah. And then, you know, once you once you identify those places that were causing outrage, then you can then you can identify, like Emmy has been saying, the people who are being targeted. And a lot of times those two things had very little to do with each other, other than the fact that the people who are being targeted were largely in some sort of more vulnerable position whether they were marginalized or whether they had less resources like they would they would target a lot of indie developers probably because they didn't have big you know companies around them to hide them and protect them even if they the big companies usually wouldn't do that but that was that was the perception they would go after women they would go after in particular they'd go after women games journalists and women game developers but again like in in large part those people had nothing to do with like the the making the the games that these people hated yeah, it was pretty wild. So something that has come up, maybe this is my own fault in, in my analysis, but trying to understand what the beliefs and goals of Gamergate are. And <clears throat> it just as an outsider, it just really seems that you can't really pin them down, right? So I'm obviously an amateur in this space, but I was trying to pin them down on their beliefs and their goals. And I kept on you know, and we'll discuss this later, kept on coming back to misogyny or to targeting like smaller gamer de- game developers. But, you know, how do we understand the beliefs and goals? Is it, is it different? Like for every part of the movement? Is it, was it more unitary? How would you describe it? I maintain that the actual goals of Gamergate stated or not were to remove the potential for women and minorities to influence the medium of gaming because it was a powerful persuasive means. I also think the secondary goal was uh, a recognition that 
this particular group of people would be easy to animate and to politically mobilize in for use in other forms of reactionary politics. And that if it wasn't gamers, they, they were going to find some other in-group to try and do a similar anti-feminist, anti-SJW, anti-critical race theory kind of thing. And I, and I, say, I say they very vaguely, and I'm, and I'm referring to a, a variety of political actors who then, you know, became some of our, our favorite people, right? Like there's no, there's no, it's no, it's no coincidence that the, like, that Breitbart picked a hard side in the Gamergate, <laughs> Gamergate fiasco and that those characters became sort of re- return, returning characters in, in the ongoing saga of America's political conflicts. Yeah. I think it would be incorrect to say that was all of Gamergate or even the majority of it. Gamergate statistics are really hard because again, we couldn't see it all happen. Much of it's gone now. And from a data science perspective, maybe Alex can speak more on this. So much of it was astroturfed from like all yes. angles. Like there was this flood of posts on Twitter for brand new accounts. And we know they were planning and organizing for this to blow up the way it did. And I think there were probably plenty of participants who were really frustrated with the you know, perceived disparagement of gamers as a group and felt like certain politics are being forced into their spaces. But uh, this doesn't exonerate them from the misogyny of it all and the politics they were mad about, even the concept of being anti-SJW and all that. The whole thing was like really steeped in good old fashioned dog whistles and discriminations of like all kinds. And just because someone didn't consciously recognize themselves to be sexist does not absolve them of participating in that. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's why we call it, why I still sort of refer to Gamergate as a training ground for what came later. They they really did hone a lot of the techniques that like disinfo networks used later on. I mean, it, it is, it is like Gamergate was multifaceted. There were a ton of different communities who were, who were often, you know, warring against each other as just as much as they were outside of it as well. And everyone had varying, you know, sort of divergent motives in that, like the, the Breitbart's of the world leaned really heavily into Gamergate because they, they had an inkling that it would allow them to establish an audience base that they could use for other things and make more money, et cetera. Like Bannon definitely knew what he was doing when he was exploiting Gamergate for his own oh, for devices. Sure. And like Milo Yiannopoulos got his start during Gamergate and like knew what he was doing, knew he was establishing a, a brand for himself as a reactionary. I mean, it it is worth backing up and saying that like the the facade the motivation facade that they wrapped themselves in was the the sort of it's been the meme now but like they they claimed that they were going for better ethics in games journalism that was their defense <laughs> that was their that, that was uh-huh. their suit of armor against criticism and it worked far too well talk for, from a game spot guy Alex. oh my god there was like it worked it, it one of the most frustrating things thinking about gamergate is just how well their sort of fake goal worked and yeah. duping all sorts of people like it got this there was this wave of all of the the gaming outlets putting out these statements that weren't in support of the people being harassed they were in support of the idea that gaming outlets need to work better at at you know being ethical in games journalism like, such a cop out oh my god it drove me it nuts was- yeah but that, I mean, that was like, there were, there were some people on the fringes who legitimately believed that Gamergate was about that. I, there were some high profile, like there were a couple of politicians who got wrapped into it and actually legitimately believed for a second that it was like that. But those people were all just, you know, they were exploited. <laughs> like it was, it was, yeah. they were, they were duped because, you know, what we find at the, what we find at the core of the movement, what we find at the core of Gamergate is that it was 
the goal was to wrest power back from what they had seen as like antagonistic forces. They wanted, it was, it was sort of the, the reactionary model, you know, writ in the digital age in the, in a digital community and digital campaign. Like they, they were ascendant. They felt like their ascendant position was being attacked and undermined by various other forces. They felt like their identity creation, you know, apparatus was being, uh, opposed and they wanted to get revenge and also wrest power back in whatever way they could, which is why, for instance, you saw so many people celebrating for years, their ability for, I think it was Intel to like, they, they essentially bullied Intel into pulling ads from a website that was going against Gamergate. Like that was a, that was a success for them that they literally talked to, still talk about today. Oh yeah. They got a, they got a real high out of seeing like weird reddit bullshit go mainstream you know it doesn't happen like you know 4chan 4chan's always trying it right they love they love to do their little bits and goofs and try to go try to go viral try to inconvenience somebody on a local news station you know and to have something that they were participating in blow up like this there was a point i mean obviously the the concerns they were talking about were garbage to begin with but we're still rhetorically very useful for trying to convince people that they had a real motivation, a real message, or any sort of real outcome, right? Like, there was never a real list of Gamergate demands. Like, there was some stuff that floated around every now and then, but there was no, like, real goal other than, quote-unquote, ethics and games journalism, which is not, not a thing. And they, but they, there was a point when it became a game for them, and they were in, they were just, like, how much how much further can we take this and which in which like i do think it is comparable to the gamestop thing where there was there was some point where it was like the fun part of this is the meme now and not whatever thing we were originally trying to do i also think they did a really good job of creating like you know conspiracy theories around it right like i mean they they had they had truly crafted the identity of the gamer as as an oppressed group i think that was partially a mockery because again the people they were attacking were actually oppressed groups and they yeah. were like well we're gamers so we're act- we're the real oppressed ones and you're infringing on our space not we're keeping you out and so to to kind of keep moving with that they had they had created this whole narrative about the different games journalists and the websites that were all working against them and like we have now seen that redone a whole lot of times in different political movements since gamergate yeah i mean do you remember emmy do you remember when kotaku and action and some of the other subreddits literally got the ceo of reddit fired like that shit was that was (laughs) like gamergate wasn't just targeting game like gaming journalists either like it was this coordinated campaign to try to like just get revenge against anyone they had felt had slighted them like it was this oh yeah wildly like broad broad-based harassment campaign like the 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 reddit situation that i was just hinting at in i think it was summer of 2014 the reddit had hired a new ceo she was a woman she had started taking greater action like banned a couple of like blatantly racist subreddits banned a a subreddit that was targeting and like inciting violence against against overweight people and like the main Gamergate subreddit and a bunch of other subreddits banded together and like mounted a ba- basically like a, a harassment campaign plus boycott of Reddit that literally got that that like contributed to her getting fired after like three months on the job. Was it the Polygon CEO who was just like 
I'm done. Who he who got doxxed once and just quit. He's like, this isn't worth it. Yeah, I think I don't was... remember which guy. Was. I think it was Polygon. Yeah. Oh my god. It, it was and, and like they, they designed it that way on purpose to make it such a because again they knew that they had no real political footing. Yeah. They knew that they yeah. had no real argument, so they instead made it uh, such a high risk to push back against Gamergate at all that nobody with any real power wanted to do it. And that that was a really good intimidation strategy. It worked really well because a lot of people that maybe could have spoken up more, maybe could have put you know somewhat of a stop to it or at least stopped their organizations from entertaining it, didn't because they just watched the CEO of Reddit get fired. When I was doing the notes for the show, I entertained a, a kind of a counterfactual, which was... If Zoe and Anita were men, right, if they were men making the same arguments, you know, doing the same development, right, so Zoe's a guy who develops depression quest, Anita is, you know, issuing the same criticism, but as a male, would Gamergate have ever either A, happened, or B, reach its sort of nadir, its sort of this explosive reactionary movement, and then Kind of a, a sub point to that. Why is like misogyny so animating? Like I, I have never encountered a, a concept or a set of concepts that seems to animate so much of the online, other than misogyny, misogyny and racism, but mostly misogyny. Political valence, and there are a lot of forms of of misogyny that are more acceptable in the public view, especially in media, because like women are just not included in those spaces that you can get a lot further with before somebody yells at you. And that's not to say it's like stronger or worse than other forms of discrimination. That would be absurd. But especially in in media spaces, movies, games, TV shows, that whole thing, it it has a it has a lot of of staying power. And of course, I mean there's the old joke about John video games the main character of every first person shooter like these games are very much made and tailored for men so like misogyny was all the way integrated it, it's it's vague and normal that it can move through almost any community without like direct confrontation and I, I think in this case it was so useful because existing frustration and like a, a real disgust from the reactionary right towards feminist movements the internet had just started to mainstream there was definitely a perceived demographic shift and also because the games industry had accidentally made this monster. It was them who invented the gamer identity. Like they needed to brand and sell their products. Even though women made up a substantial proportion of gamers, we already talked about like even a majority, the most interesting demographic for those advertisers were were young men, military wanted these to recruit. So that was who game developers and advertisers like decided to use. And there was this existing boys club mentality in video game fan communities and in the industry and of course, they were discriminatory towards all sorts of other things, too. But a lot of people worked very, very hard to make video games a special thing for boys. And when the boys felt that change, they wanted to kick girls out of the treehouse. And yeah. I think I think if Anita and, and Zoe had both been men, I think they both absolutely still would have gotten shit. Like, they would have been, you know, tossed aside as terrible soy boys. But I don't think Gamergate would have revolved around them. That is not to say... Gamergate would not have happened. I just don't think they would have been the main characters. Yeah, the the one the the one thing I'll add here too is that I, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but I think one of the core animating factors of misogyny, even over sometimes like racism or white supremacy, is that you have this 
extremely virulent strain of jealousy that comes in jealousy and entitlement that comes in when in, in mainstream communities that are that that lean towards misogyny and sexism and it's in and it's in my opinion far more prevalent in those mainstream communities than that jealousy strain is in in the sort of racism that can expand you about like this is the same so like 2013 2014 is the same era that like the incel movement was getting its start and it's you know really like right tangential to the elliot rogers shooting and the sort of mm-hmm. ascendancy of the power of the incels like there is this profound like feeling getting boosted among these sorts of predominantly white male communities that like they are being conspired against to deprive them of sex and deprive them of relationships alongside all of these other sorts of you know hate-based feelings that that we've been talking about throughout this episode so you end up with this merging of these like really really virulent strains of both jealousy and hate that that you know result in like the you know incels and misogynists being some of the most violent extremists on the planet and also their you know the harassment campaigns that we see are generally geared towards the misogyny side like that that is the more that is the more dominant strain of like coordinated harassment in my opinion yeah whichever group of people you're planning on hating you can always start with women and you'll get you get your foot in the door to to start a hate movement so I kind of want to switch over to kind of more a theory sort of approach for this question, which was, what do you consider Gamergate? So Alex, you referred to it as a movement. I've referred to it as a movement. But as I was kind of digging and kind of thinking about this stuff, I I said, you know, you know, is it a fandom? Is it a subculture? Where's that line between those, those three? You know, where do we say, you know, something is a movement with political goals, political ideas, you know, whereas, you know, a fandom or a subculture, you know, where do we place that line that separates those concepts? You know, I don't think it's wrong to call Gamergate a movement. I certainly have. I dislike it because I don't feel like it had any sort of concrete goals the way movements often do even movements that get kind of watered down I think I think it's a phenomenon like Gamergate Gamergate it's like it's like a low pressure system moving through like you have you have all the conditions to make a tornado but that doesn't mean you're going to get one and Gamergate is when you get the tornado if that makes sense like a movement implies they had this goal and they kind of didn't not when they were honest about anyway a fandom implied that they liked something and they didn't it was about what they hated and as a subculture I don't know I mean they identified as being gamers but again it would not be not hashtag not all gamers so I, I don't know it doesn't none of the labels quite feel right like fandoms and subcultures debate politics all of the time but they are not solely defined by them you know with the exception of some political fandoms which are their own sort of thing but yeah in my in my mind Gamergate to me is a a phenomenon yeah I mean I think it it Gamergate was sort of one of the one of those early examples of the difficulties of of labeling modern day reactionary reactionary campaigns like I would call it like I usually call it like a backlash campaign usually like I use movement as a shorthand but like like Amy said, it doesn't really fit the the realm of a social movement or political movement because it doesn't have goals. But at the same time, like neither really did parts of the Trump movement. Like 
they were all backlash revenge driven they didn't really have discrete political goals and so i think Mm -hmm. you know it's it's probably easier to look to what was being built on top of gamergate like there you know especially at the tail end there was political infrastructure being built on top of it a lot of the influencers would go on to be involved in politics in various different ways it was it was setting the stage for launching more discrete political movements down the line and so in that way it might even be called like a i don't know like a a precursor to a political movement or something like that something that isn't exactly just a campaign or a phenomenon is something a little bit more structured something a little bit more targeted but but again those those political goals that ended up getting adopted into the trump campaign and other reactionary populist campaigns didn't really start appearing until later on yeah i mean like because here's the thing, the ethics and games journalism thing was dropped forever after the, the use of the word Gamergate ended. That was no that was no longer a political concern, fake or not, of any of the reactionary movements that actually followed. But the tactics of Gamergate were, and which is why I focused so much on the conditions, because people looked at Gamergate and they saw it was like, okay, if we can recreate these conditions, we can we can feed them any line we want. And we can have that same outcome. We can, I mean, we can, we have an on-demand digital army if we want it, which is why it's, you know, I I think a lot of people kind of wasted time with Gamergate trying to categorize it instead of really understanding what was happening and just acknowledging that movement subcultures, generally organization looks different now because of the internet. And a lot of people were too slow to catch up on that. And unfortunately, Steve Bannon was not. It's actually a really good point, Amy, and I hadn't really ever thought of it like that. Like what they had ended up succeeding in doing. Well, the let's like the Breitbart, the political operatives who are on top trying to exploit Gamergate, is they helped form this into a like a <coughs> a consolidated army that they could direct into a certain uh, location to target. That's really interesting, and we're going to touch on that here soon. But I, I kind of want to continue on this line of describing Gamergate because I think. Something that I've kind of struggled with is explaining things to people when when I have when you you're day to day in depth in it, right? So you know all the parts, you know the you know everything in and out, but then when an outsider looks at it, it's much more nebulous. And I think using the language of like it's a movement, it's a fandom, it's a subculture kind of helps it's the explanatory factor, but at the same time, it's never enough. Like it almost, I almost have, have to use the word milieu, right? It's a, a loose mm-hmm. connection of ideologies and people as opposed to like a concrete movement or a fandom. Cause I, I feel like when you use fandom, it, you know, it's just as easy for somebody to say, Oh, that's just alt Swift X explaining Game of Thrones, right? It's a positive, inclusive thing. And nobody really, you know, nobody wants to kind of think of a fandom, at least a normie doesn't want to think of a fandom as, you know, a negative space or something that is, you know, wholly inseparable from misogyny. Yeah, I mean, these are, these are, these are questions that have literally had dissertations written about them. Like Gamergate is something that people continue to study for years. So it's like, it's, it's useful for people outside looking in to to call it to to understand it as like a movement or as a subculture or something like that but like the i think 
this is where like thinking about the impacts, understanding the impacts of something are better than, are, are more useful than understanding the actual, like uh, understanding what to call it or what to label it as, what it actually was. It's easier to look at what the consequences were down the line. Yeah, because listen, I will absolutely sit down with any political science professor and explain start to finish everything that went wrong with the Mass Effect 3 launch. And nobody wants that except me who wants to do it so bad. So I thought like when, like when we are like a fandom movement, like these things are really useful shorthand for kind of catching people up on it. But those, they have, they have limitations and that all of those words imply that Gamergate was somehow contained. And it was not. The hashtag had a start and it kind of fizzled out, but the, mo- the, the, the movement that was Gamergate, the phenomenon that was Gamergate did not end. It did not end at all. It shifted focus. It changed titles, but it did not go away. We did not, we did one, we did not solve misogyny in digital communities or in game spaces or in movies or anything anywhere. It, it's still very much real. People still don't like women doing things. And we now have, we have game, we have little gamer gates all the time. And it has become normalized because ever since Gamergate, people have had a better understanding of how digital organizing works and how it looks. And now we're all very familiar with, like one might argue Zoe Quinn got the right-wing cancellation treatment. And we are now all very familiar with what that looks like. And it happens all the time and we don't bat an eye at it. Not that we don't think it's bad, but it's like, this this is just how stuff works now. And at some point the conditions will be right and a new low pressure system will move in and we will get a new tornado that may or may not resemble Gamergate. And then we will again have to, reimagine how we how we understand digital organizing yeah and no one who was involved in gamergate that i can think of had faced any consequences for their actions like still to this day the gamergate core still searches twitter for mentions the term gamergate and still harasses people like game game journalists still have to use like censored like using asterisks inside of gamergate if they ever want to talk about it online like this I had friends last year who wrote reviews for The Last of Us 2 and had were harassed for months for oh giving it a God. 7 out of 10 instead of a 9 or a 10 out of 10. Like it was insane how much this still happens, how much people are still getting the brunt of the harassment and the hate from from that movement that from that core of people who have not let it go. Right. Like The Last Jedi. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It happens across, like, if anything, like, they dropped the term Gamergate because it became much easier for them to go after other communities. Like, it, Yeah, they, Gamergate became cringe. Yeah, exactly. They brought in it way outside of games, and now it's just this sort of, like, we have just, I guess, sort of implicitly accepted that there's just going to be this, like, s- tens of thousands of people out there who are just going to coordinate harassment campaigns if they, if they find someone that they don't like and says something against yeah. the things that they love, like... That's like, that's, I guess, just part of a fixture of the culture now. And not even things that they love, things that they see as, you know, the, the last defense against uh, anybody who isn't them engaging with some sort of culture, especially, and again, it's not like they're defending really niche stuff, right? Like they are, they are defending very, very public, very well-known franchises, games, communities, because they recognize those as powerful political forces, they do not want the outgroup to have access to. 
Like that, I, that's why they go after Star Wars and don't go after, you know, queer indie movies. Like it, 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 it's, it's not just that they don't want these people to be able to make content. They don't want them to be able to make content where other people can see it in, in a way that would give them political mobility, in a way that would give people, you know, a voice that would give them access to the mainstream culture the way that they have been afforded for so long. Because I mean, if you're making the next blockbuster movie, you now have a lot of control over how the public perceives things like good and bad, how they understand morality, how they how they understand what a normal person looks like. I mean, these are things that Hollywood has had control over for a very long time. It absolutely makes sense that they would set up camp there and try to protect their cool space movies from uh, women. Yeah, people of color. I think one of the one of the more concerning things that's come out of this too is that th- these these reactionaries within the pop culture milieu, I guess, are figuring out that they can actually start having an effect on things outside of games too. Like the the example that comes to mind is that is the the like initial trailer for the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. Like I mm-hmm. like I thought that thing looked terrible too. Like as everyone did, it looks like trash, but the the ability for a coordinated campaign to essentially like mount a huge backlash against it and literally get them to delay the movie and go back and like completely redo all of the art and it basically came solely from twitter is like that is a terrifying sort of you know impact of what gamergate set up yeah and it makes me sad because on one hand i think stuff like that in principle is very very cool that we now have this direct line from people who love stuff to people who make it and that those people can be in sync with each other and can connect with each other. And I think that's really special. I think it's one of the things that's really special about, about fandoms, but definitely the, the backlash mill, that, that sort of thing that was, that was set up, like that people are afraid of their fans, that people are, are, are afraid of sort of the things that the internet has, has put forth, especially post Gamergate is really tragic and it means that we are going to get like i absolutely think that the quality of the media we are going to get has suffered because of that because there is a population out there that people are afraid of upsetting and they tailored their content to try to step around that best they can i I think where we've missed out probably on a lot of incredible experimental media that we'll just never get to see because nobody wanted to have the SWAT team show up at their house because a dude on 4chan got really mad about it. That's interesting. I kind of want to touch on something that you, you brought up and then and I kind of want to dig into it, which was, Alex, you described this as, as a training ground. And I think in our conversation, in our pre-sort of interview conversation, you had mentioned that Gamergate created a realm of possibility. Could you dig into that for us? I mean, I guess within the timeline, it kind of makes sense that Gamergate kind of predates the alt-right and predates MAGA, but dig into what you meant by realm of possibility. Yeah, so Gamergate was really a place for various sort of political forces to literally prototype different strategies for like generating public opinion, generating certain campaigns, generating whatever they needed to, and also using that sort of like a group of like hardened, committed people for various, you know, causes and impacts. Like, like Emmy was saying, Gamergate created an army of people that were directed out by like Breitbart to do various other things. So like, 
I, I remember looking at chats that had leaked out of Gamergate chats and they were literally like going, you know, like basically having a whiteboard session about how best to harass people and how best to send death threats, like when to send them, how to phrase them, how to find people's information, how to dox people, like all of those things had occurred before Gamergate. But this was the first time that there was this large population of people who were committed to it and organizing together in the same chats talking about these strategies. And so in a lot of ways, Gamergate really was this point where they hashed out how exactly to undertake the sort of reactionary strategies that we saw pop up later in the alt-right, like the, the rise of the alt-right in the Trump campaign. And then also in, in England during Brexit and in Germany during the rise of the AFD, like all of these things pulled strategies that were innovated during, or, or at least, you know, enhanced and augmented during Gamergate. And the, like, it, and it wasn't just these sort of like swarms, the masses of people who were doing this either, like Breitbart, Breitbart and other right-wing publications were actively and intentionally doing like basically like A-B testing to see what they could write yep. and how they could phrase it to spark those to to get their the gamer the hardened gamer gators to actually go out and target someone like they were figuring out how to phrase a headline to create the most outrage they were figuring out what to put on their front page and how to organize their website to get people to target certain people in a particular way like all of those things were getting done and getting revised and enhanced during that during that time another another thing they learned really really important it's that there is not consequences for this yeah. behavior. Yeah. Nothing bad will happen to you if you are anonymous on the internet and you incite a mob. You can do that online and nothing nothing will happen to you. Worst case scenario, if you do it badly, people will make fun of you. But you're you're not gonna go to jail for that. And like all of a sudden you can just kind of call up a political movement from the earth because they learned that like this reactionary populism is this powerful packaging for anti-feminism, for you know, anti-SJWs. And it was perfectly designed to suit a digital space, which was a frontier that mainstream politics was still struggling to make sense of at the time. And I don't know, people talk about it being like you know, co-opted by the right. I don't think that's accurate because I'm not confident in saying that it was ever not a right-wing movement, which again, I'm sure people on Twitter are going to give me grief for saying, please don't. I'm a nice person, but it was definitely used by the right, guided by the right. And, and like, I think, I mean, Breitbart is obviously the most like apparent and well-documented example of that. Yeah. I mean, I'll say like, I I'm, I'm comfortable saying it's inherently a right-wing movement because it's inherently reactionary, but. Okay. Go but harass yeah. Alex. Yeah. Go, you can, you can come at me. Alex B. Newhouse. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's sort of the thing about it. Like they you know, in, in all of these things, like the prototyping, the actual tactics, plus the the recognition that you there aren't any consequences led to, like there being this shift in the culture, there being this greater sense of like, oh, we can actually exploit like gaming influencers. We can get PewDiePie on board to to shout out certain things that shift culture in a certain way that's like more amenable to the political goals that we want down the line. Like there were all of these sort of like very subtle knock-on effects and and realizations that the political right had when observing Gamergate that led to a lot of the strategies that they ended up using during the Trump campaign. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it set them up so nicely for reactionary populist sentiments. And like they, they learned how to astroturf an army. Like it, it's this incredible power. And 
there's there's nothing comparable on the left to that right now. Like these, they weren't at these digital spaces that are crude, that make weird jokes and reference weird things and have no place in the political mainstream. Digital spaces that have been immune to advertising so long because they are so grotesque actually have this very powerful ability to mobilize and dramatically shift the Overton window. And I learned that if you make the conditions right, you can control them. Like it's really easy to get them to do this. And it sucks that Steve Bannon was like one of the first people to really get good at this and that he totally knew that going into 2016. Yeah. Oh, do you remember the, so one of my other favorite examples, uh, go-to examples of, of how this worked is, so like I, I mentioned Pewdie, PewDiePie already and he was never like a committed gamer gator, but he had picked up slogans and the sort of tone of the community that he had surrounded himself with, which were in a large part, at least the vocal minority was committed gamer gators and Mm -hmm. he had started like you know he had started like saying edgy jokes and like you know doing sort of subtle call outs to gamergate and stuff and then at some point he just like said some racist nasty crap and and like the sort of more mainstream like video game outlets and and mainstream video game communities sort of like reasonably was like you shouldn't do that pewdiepie you're the biggest youtuber on the planet probably one of the most powerful influencers in the world and he after a while he like apologized and said okay i'm gonna give a donation to the adl and then that (laughs) same machinery the gamergate machinery spun up and was like and like literally mounted like a like a smear campaign against adl in his comments and forced him to say just kidding i'm not going to donate to the adl i didn't know what the adl was because he had just been told by a bunch of like committed gamer gators who later become later became nazis that the adl was some sort of like conspiratorial jewish organization that was you know undermining whatever undermining america like that that was a you know extreme like a a very sort of hardened example of that machinery in in action they fully went after the wall street journal claiming that they were like biased against pewdiepie who again um is a YouTuber <laughs> and doesn't have like a real job. Right. So whatever the Wall Street Journal was mad about, they could simply not read it. But no, no, no. The, to them, there was a conspiracy. It was another example of a conspiracy against gamers, a conspiracy against content creators, a conspiracy against the digital spaces that they that they were so protective of. And in retrospect, it's like, I mean, again, ended up being very important, but it's also just kind of hilariously pathetic. Like, really, you're going to go after the, the Wall Street Journal over a, a YouTuber, the the most popular YouTuber yeah, who has inf- like infinity money. Come on, man. Like more power he, than the Wall Street Journal, honestly, probably. Yeah, uh, for real. He could mobile. He has they, PewDiePie has more subscribers in the Wall Street Journal. By like a <laughs> like, ma- several magnitudes of hang too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, and, and this is not me defending either of the two because I, I care very little for both. But yeah, it just, the the mechanics of fandom, and that's interesting because I do think that's a better example of a time where it really was more fandom oriented, but it was still using the Gamergate yeah. playbook. Because at that point, it actually was people who like PewDiePie and were defending him. And of course, I think, you know, a certain percentage of kind of bad actors hopped on because they saw an opportunity and they were like, hey, I don't care very much about PewDiePie, but I do very, yeah, I care a lot about being allowed to say the N-word on the internet. So I'm going to make this my issue too. So I can also say the gamer word without getting in trouble. And it had very little to do with PewDiePie's actual fandom at a certain point. So I'm kind of interested uh, in revisiting something you said, Emmy. You took, you disagreed with the the word co-opt. 
that yeah. the, the political right didn't co-op Gamergate. Could you maybe dig into that for us a little more? And, you know, what is the disagreement with the word co-op? Is there sort of an alternate word or sort of process that you would describe in which the political right kind of... Yeah, no, I think harnessed is a little bit more accurate. My problem with the word co-op is that it implies that there was ever a genuine movement underneath, which I don't truly believe that there was. When you're dealing with a reactionary movement like that, when you're dealing with reactionary populism in particular, it's sort of inherently a right-wing movement. Uh, reg- again, and this is regardless of what the people involved individually thought they were doing, because I know we're going to get a couple of people on Twitter who are like, okay, but I was actually concerned about ethics and games journalism, and buddy, uh, you were played. Sorry, there's not there's not a way around it. The, the people who are orchestrating this, the people who are writing the playbook, and the people who were most loudly supportive of Gamergate were figures of the political right. They were figures of the reactionary right. And the ones that did not consider themselves part of the reactionary right, there are a couple on the reactionary left that are just as annoying and just a little bit less openly racist. Yeah, which is why why I, I object to the idea that the right co-opted it because I think the people who, who started it, people who pushed for it, the people who are most angry about you know, women and games, about the perception that uh, gaming identity was being threatened or gaming spaces were being threatened were people who were already aligned with the political right. And I don't think it's a coincidence that people like, you know, Milo and Sarnovich and the like from Breitbart were big Gamergate dudes and ended up being very much thought leaders of the political right going forward, not very long after Gamergate. I don't think that Breitbart hopped on it just because they saw an opportunity and took it. I think the rhetoric of Gamergate had to align with the things that they found important first for them to do that. I think the part of Gamergate that one could argue was, I don't know, I don't even want to say co-opted, but harnessed was that more influential media figures than just kind of, you know, the randos learned that they did have some power to direct and more or less control the direction of this kind of thing. And that ended up becoming kind of a a playbook of the political right going forward. And there is no comparable thing on the left. The left did not and still does not have media power that comes anywhere near the sort of influence that things like Breitbart and such had and did. This is partially because the liberal establishment has no real interest in moving things further to the left while the right would really like to move things further to the right. So there hasn't been a comparable movement with left-wing politics because Gamergate was an attack on perceived left-wing politics. Like if they knew the phrase critical race theory at the time, they would have accused Quinn of that too. Oh yeah. And that's, yeah, it, it, it's, it's I, I get kind of frustrated with the amount of times people try to claim like, well, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't about them. It was, you know, they really leaned back on that ethics and games journalism thing. And it's like, no, it wasn't. And anybody who looks at it, well, I think, I think it's a certain kind of blindness you get if you were too much on the inside and truly did think that you were participating in something genuine. But Alex, I'm going to push you to talk about the Twitter bots for a second. Because there was roughly 10,000 brand new Twitter accounts that showed up like that month and were all pushing Gamergate stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean... Yeah. I mean, that's a, yeah, that, that's one of those, those strategies and tactics that was honed during, during Gamergate. Like there was, 
there was a lot of astroturfing, a lot of bot activity going on, like, you know, from various provenance. One of the one of the issues with not having any of this data still with having it all deleted is that we like a lot of it was deleted before modern day contemporary like disinfo research was actually developed. So we were really flying in the dark with understanding what happened, where it came from. But like, you know, there are there's there's there is evidence for influence operations being at least like primitive influence operations being run from all sorts of different angles. Like there name and name an actor who was involved in this disinfo and they probably had some foray into the Gamergate era. But yeah, like bots bots were a huge part of it and not and, and it is worth saying that like bots were being used by just your normal 4chan troll as well. Like they were they were setting up sock puppet accounts. They were setting up all sorts of different ways to to harass people. Again, that's one of the one of those things they were innovating is like they were figuring out in these chats, like how do we how do we make sure that Zoe Quinn is in as many corners as possible? And they set up fake accounts and bots to do that. And yeah, I mean, just to go back to, to what Emmy was saying for a sec too, like it, it was inherently right wing. That is not to let the weird left wingers who were sympathetic to Gamergate off the hook. Like there were a good a good number of the sort of anti-culture war, anti-SJW leftists who who sort of threw in their threw their hat in the ring for for Gamergate and they should be remembered and held accountable for their for their propping yeah. up of, of a far-right harassment campaign but but yeah yeah for sure they it it every now and then you see people who try to write about Gamergate try to talk about Gamergate and they're like well it was more complicated than people say it is you know it wasn't all just a far-right harassment campaign in fact these very prominent figures were all actually leftists it's like, hmm, mm. hmm. Were, were they though? Yeah. And let's uh, uh, <laughs> let's let's remember our our old friend, not friend at all, Sargon Avakad, who literally ran yeah. for a uh, member of parliament of the UKIP ticket in Britain, uh, <laughs> like a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, are they though? Is my first question, and the second one I have is like, right, and very there was some coalition that happened on the grounds of anti-feminism and that should be something that you pay attention to not come oh well it couldn't have been far right because uh, a couple of commies were in there when the thing you really need to be noticing is like why do people why are there some people who would have normally aligned themselves with leftist politics all of a sudden throw their hat in the ring for anti-feminism anti-social justice warrior all of that shit what happened there because that is really really important that is really really important and is in people who are who are trying to draw the distinction of like well that was a diverse group of, of candidates who were uh, from different political angles who were involved in this movement are really missing the point that there was a that there is a certain type of, of reactionary thought that was pervasive and persuasive to a variety of different very online political actors the other thing i will remind you though is that you did not really see any mainstream political left picking up on gamergate yeah which i think is really important because it's not like you saw the libs getting worked up about ethics and games journalism you saw very online leftists getting worked up about it but that's a very different ball game isn't it yeah yeah i mean if you're if you're if you say you're a marxist but you're an anti-egalitarian you're still an anti-egalitarian like there's no sort of like way around it this is this gamergate is one of those places where like it's really important to look at what people do rather than what they say and Mm -hmm. you know it 
there are, there are a lot of things to be written about and research to be done about the sort of segment of people calling themselves Marxists and communists and Maoists who are oh yeah actually in line with the sort of authoritarian hierarchical sort who were predominant in the Gamergate campaign. I mean, I also, think it would be- one thing Gamergates do is famously they never lie. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think it's, all, you know, a, one honest. thing to consider when you're on the internet is that sometimes people might not be telling you the truth. Yeah. And the things that they do and say might not be accurate and they might not be who they are claiming to be. Right. Especially when you have 10,000 sock puppets out of nowhere. Seems kind of important to keep that in mind. Yes. So something that comes to mind is how, like it, it appears from the outside that Gamergate was very quickly mainstream into the right. So not, not only from a perspective of TTPs, but also kind of the main actors in Gamergate go on to traditional success, Mike Cernovich, Milo, Milo Yiannopoulos, et cetera. So my question is, why was that mainstreaming so successful, right? Why, why is the right so good or so efficient or whatever word you want to use at mainstreaming its online politics into its more traditional party structures? And then a sub point, which I, I think you guys brought up, which how much of that mainstreaming is real? How much of that is starts off as a product of astroturfing and then becomes real? Because like the question of reality is just, I, I know that kind of sounds like, you know, philosophy 101, like an undergrad philosophy class, but I, I just can't stop thinking about it. Because if, if, if we just, you know, pull that thread of a lot of this is, you know, astroturfed, it's sock puppets, people aren't being genuine but the outcome seems to be well a lot of the ttps the actors the the ideologies got mainstreamed into the traditional movement into the traditional right-wing you know traditional as in not online so if you could like explore that for us i actually think for as complicated of an issue as that is this is actually a relatively easy question to answer the the right People get really hung up trying to talk about the different factions of Gamergate, and I think it's a waste of time because the political sentiments underneath all of it were more or less the same, no matter which particular argument you were making, which is why, to me, I think the most important distinctions in different Gamergate factions are organic and inorganic, are the people who were you know, making choices because it suited their own political motivations and their own beliefs and their own concerns, and people who were acting on behalf of not just their own concerns, but also something else. And, you know, that's a, that, those are going to be our sock puppets or political actors, potential foreign actors, that sort of thing. But the big thing of like why these sort of reactionary movements work so well in the right is, I mean, quite simply, the right has an interest in moving further right and the left does not. The left-wing party in the United States does not have an interest in moving further to the left. And so they do not. And they do not make efforts to take advantage of any sort of culture issue that would allow them to move further to the left. Meanwhile, the political right in the United States takes advantage of any opportunity to move further right. Why Gamergate in particular was able to gain you know, influence of political mainstream so quickly, I mean, was I honestly think like two big things, right? One, there were high profile cases of people receiving real threats, which made professional media report on it, which made the word Gamergate reach an audience that would never have encountered it otherwise. And then, you know, something like 10,000 new Twitter accounts mysteriously appeared and were able to make hashtags trend. And they, they were able to get the people where they would 
see it, not just the regulars on certain subreddits or image boards. And once that conversation got going, it was this good old fashioned culture war issue, completely divorced uh, from anything having to do with gaming. And it makes perfect sense to me that established right-wing media outlets like Breitbart would then, you know, push their guys to the front of the line to lead the charge of on, 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 on being the, the counterpoint in, in media publications for, for Gamergate. It, it seems like exactly the smart thing to do. And the fact that those figures then stuck around as culture commentators after having been able to plant the seed of, well, culture has gotten too woke. So they, uh, the social justice warriors are taking over. They're, they're, I mean, it's, it's very much a younger person's guide to the, you can't say Merry Christmas anymore kind of bullshit <laughs> like they, they they're the same architects of that who are like great we've reached the boomers on fox now we have control over this very very online younger demographic of our 16 to 34 year olds yeah i mean and, and from the political science perspective too like you know uniting uniting people under fear under a reactionary sort of umbrella is much easier than ha- uniting people under sort of a progressive moving forward umbrella you know it's it's easier to it's easier to tell people like hey we're gonna stay as it was we're gonna keep this thing in in place if you guys do this this and this than it is to say okay we're gonna there there are a million different possibilities for the future we think that the this one is the best like it, you're never gonna agree on like it, it's much harder to agree on a vision of the future than it is to agree on returning to the past. And so it is relatively straightforward from like a political standpoint to put together a sort of like hardened coalition of actors under the banner of fear or under the banner of reactionary politics. Mainstreaming that is harder. I think it's it's there there is a resistance to sort of like a you know broad based campaign based solely on fear. But what we saw was like once they had had once they had once like the Breitbart's and the Steve Bannons and Milo's had that hardened campaign, that hardened coalition together, what they could do then is start establishing people as influencers to start shifting that mainstream culture in a way that was conducive to them without actually having to do the full fear thing. And, and, you know, in, in fact, like the people who did sort of get, quote unquote, successful out of Gamergate are in large part today not actually particularly successful like Cernovich is pretty marginalized online like Milo is basically a non-factor Sargon of Akkad didn't actually win his political campaign like (laughs) it's not individuals haven't actually been that successful beyond maybe Bannon but he was successful successful for other reasons but the Gamergate was successful and having those nodes in a sort of like influence network be set up and start being able to have more power and shifting culture in a certain more conducive direction yeah i mean i think those those people i mean i think they were discarded by by the movement pretty quickly i mean especially once some of them got deplatformed then they were just no longer interesting because that's the other thing about reactionary movements is that they won't love you back so you know rip to those people hope i never see them again (laughs) yeah Good, good riddance to Milo. Good sure. riddance. That's, I mean, you kind of brought up something interesting in this conversation and in our kind of pre-interview conversation about Tumblr. And <laughs> because you pointed out in the show that the left isn't interested in moving further to the left, which, which I'm taking yeah. as the left isn't interested in integrating its more reactionary online 
movements or online parts. Yes. So if you could, I mean, I, I'm trying to set up a comparative between, you know, even if, you know, maybe that comparison doesn't actually exist, but, you know, how do we think about the left and its relationship to the online when we compare it to Gamergate? You know, how do we think about like cancel culture or, you know, the introduction of like more sort of Tumblr-esque or Tumblr-based ideas into the discourse on the left? So certain, I mean, I, I think, I think it's actually pretty reasonable to call Tumblr sort of where if, if 4chan was where a lot of right-wing ideas were kind of fostered, Tumblr was where a lot of left-wing ideas were fostered. And obviously I know Tumblr had a lot of Nazis and 4chan had a lot of weird leftists. So please don't show up my mentions. I know Tumblr stuff leaked out of Tumblr, but it, it, it leaked out of Tumblr in, in, a, in a weird way that didn't happen on other sites. So before we had cancel culture, we had call-out culture and call-out posts were very popular on Tumblr. And it was very much a style of saying, hey, this person is problematic, which was the word at the time. This is, this is, they're gonna, the kids are gonna send me to bed because I'm talking like an old person now. But they, they would, they, people would make these really long posts detailing everything that a person, individual group had done wrong, claiming that that either made them, you know, a risk to the community, whatever that community was, or needed to be avoided. It, it was almost a form of exile if you got a call out post. Some call out posts were intended for some sort of accountability, gave people a chance to apologize, but we both know that's not how the internet works. So when you got a call out post, you were done for. Tumblr would, they would eat you alive. It was very much the cancel culture before cancel culture. And, you know, before there was, you know, the woke left, there were SJWs and Tumblr was considered kind of the birthplace of social justice warrior movements. Um, And I think I've made this argument before, but I do think that a lot of the way that sort of left language on the internet evolved is very much because of Tumblr and not just because of the communities that were on Tumblr, but because Tumblr had a very particular relationship with the tagging system. So on because Tumblr had no recommendation algorithm and no like forums or anything like that, what you had to do is if you wanted your content to reach certain people, or if you wanted to find certain content, you had to rely on a tagging system. And people were very, very defensive of the tagging system. You did not put a post related to one thing in the wrong tag, or you if you forgot to tag something that should have been there, people would get mad at you. And because of that, as people desired more and more niche content and more and more people flooded the Tumblr, they had to keep making more and more micro labels to make that content easier to find for the people who wanted it or easier to avoid some people who didn't. And that led to a lot of like very strange developments in like social justice language, a lot of like new like micro identities, all sorts of strange like new movements. And that's that's because the Tumblr ecosystem encouraged that sort of behavior. And of course it didn't play very well on other sites. Like whenever someone would leave Tumblr, they'd look at these ridiculous social justice warriors with these insane you know, bios and all of this information about themselves, like this is very weird and because it only made sense in the context of the mechanics of Tumblr. And of course, Tumblr was also subject to a lot of organic influence, both from, you know, your typical like 4chan trolls, but also, you know, they were, they were very much being opted by Russians, just like every other website, but it was especially bad on Tumblr because they were very, also very reactionary. It was really easy to rile up Tumblr people. So, those, some of those things did 
week into more of the liberal mainstream. Tumblr is responsible for pushing some parts of the Overton window further left, especially as it comes to like social justice language. We we saw that culture from call out posts become quote unquote cancel culture. And that all that all does have its origins with Tumblr. What's interesting though is that the mainstream left who are more centrist liberals never embraced that the way that the right started to embrace their weird online communities. So while the Tumblr left, the digital left does have some interest in moving things further to the left. The electoral left does not. The the Democratic Party, which is in the United States, our left-wing party, is not attempting to collaborate with Tumblr teens in any way, shape, or form to, to move things further to the left in any way that's comparable to the way that like Bannon was cooperating with, you know, 4chan people to move things further to the right. So as far as what sort of like digital influence Tumblr has had, it has been extensive, but the way it has not quite, I think, the, I think you know, I think there is actually one big way where Tumblr politics have been very influential to the mainstream and that is the art of like language performance and that saying the right thing that corresponds to the right you know woke idea is more important than the actions that back that up and that is again very much part of how the tumblr tagging system was right and the way call-up posts would work is if it, it, it didn't matter if you had the right intention or the right sentiment or even did the right thing but if you said the wrong thing if you used the wrong language if you didn't play by by tumblr's very complex social rules that was considered a failure more than doing actual harm was and we still see that a lot like that that is that has become kind of a mainstream in a lot of like like liberal politics we see this a lot like that was we talked about that so much when it came to the 2020, like the, the, the various protests and like Black Lives Matter movements we saw, right? Where we would see a lot of like, we see you, we hear you, I'm raising the police budget, right? Like that was how so many like mainstream Democrat politicians kind of played this. And they, because they, they, were, they were responding to growing leftist sentiment, growing progressive sentiments in their political base and young people, but they were responding to it by trying to use the right words and not using the right actions. And to some extent that works because every now and then they'll still be like, woo, so-and-so is a girl boss, even as they do things that actively hurt women and minorities. But I also think that younger progressives are a bit more immune to that now, because they have had sort of that digital experience and so they are more familiar with how that rhetoric works if that makes sense it's going to be very interesting in the coming years to see how that plays out because the 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 far right version of this is not going to stop and there's no sign of it stopping that that is how how mainstream conservatism works now is that it's tied to buckwild army of posters and you can't you can't anger them, you can't eject them, you can't get around it. They are your 
base now. Trump made sure of that. Bannon made sure of that. And it's not quite the same thing on the left yet. And in fact, the left doesn't like it. They find a lot of the digital stuff kind of distasteful. We saw that with, with the Bernie Sanders campaign, right? Where the Demo a lot of Democrats were like, well, you know, these people are being rude online and that's not something we want to represent in our politics, which, you know, okay, but the right is doing it and they're winning. So the, 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 the like liberals have not fully embraced the power of posting. And that feels really gross to say out loud <laughs> uh, and it feels very like kind of silly, but they are still very caught up on some form of political etiquette that is no longer enforced by anyone other than themselves. And so they still think that the old form of, of politics is going to be the way to move forward. They have not fully adjusted to like the new digital ecosystem. Alex, did you want to, to add anything or? Oh, no, I'll let the Tumblr expert. Oh, yeah, I wish I wasn't. So we've touched on a lot of things today and we've kind of reached the end. And yes, per tradition, the end is always an open ended question. So before we leave for the day, give us something to think about, chew on, something to, to, to leave us, you know, for further research opportunities or further thinking opportunities or whatever. Let's start with Emmy. Yeah, I, I think if you're interested in looking into Gamergate or in general, looking into online movements, especially with stuff that was really important and also really hard to archive, like you know, anything that ever happened on Tumblr or 4chan is just really hard to, really hard to follow. And, and same things that happened on like, you know, subreddits that are gone now. Um, the place I would advise you to start looking is to look at comment sections because they tend to be some of the most well-preserved and also people do not hold back their feelings on in comment sections. Boy, do they go all out. So if you go back to some of the old Gamergate content and look at the comment sections, you can get a really good idea of what the debate was, who was involved, who was mad about what. Same thing if you go to like even the old Kotaku articles and read the comments there with the knowledge that some of the worst of the comments have probably been removed or, or moderated. But you can, again, still go to archive and always look at that stuff. That has been the easiest way to kind of get some sort of historical record is by reading people's open complaints about about what was going on. I also encourage anybody who's doing any sort of disinfo, extremism, digital communications research of any kind to spend more time analyzing YouTube comments because there is so much valuable data there that gives yes, you a very is. good idea of how, of how digital movements operate. And then for my part, I, I have been curious for a while about doing more research into how we can detect or understand where the sort of center of gravity shifts after video games. So like there, there are various sub communities that exhibit like very strong influences or very strong tactical influences from the Gamergate sort of example. Like the two that come to mind are the Barstool sports community and the cryptocurrency community. <laughs> Both of those have like really, really high levels of coordination and harassment that follow anytime any criticism is levied against them. If you don't believe me, just go search on Twitter or social media for either of those, either Bitcoin or Barstool Sports, and you'll see what I mean. Negative about crypto. And yeah, wait. yeah, exactly. Uh, get a sock account and just bait people. <laughs> Ruin into, your life. Yeah. yeah. I am in, I think a, a really interesting area of research would be to see if we can actually detect 
those sorts of tactics at scale and try to actually identify where they're being used, what subcommunities they're being used. And, you know, I, there probably has been some work done on it. I know there's been some work on detecting harassment campaigns, but I'm, I'm curious. I think there's probably a way to do to to actually do some sort of rig- rigorous analysis on on understanding the particular sort of characteristics of Gamergate style reactionary campaigns as they emerge online. Awesome. So those were my guests, Alex and Emmy. Thank you so much for coming on the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. That was fun.